Scott Griffin is the author of My Heart is Africa, a Flying Adventure. He is also the chairman and major shareholder of two manufacturing companies and the owner of House of Anansi Press. He's chairman and trustee of the Griffin Trust for Excellence in Poetry and chancellor of Bishop's University. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Nice to be here, Nigel. You are a very impressive accomplished human being. How did you become so? Well, that's about the most difficult question I've had for a long time. A few assumptions in that remark. I think we're a product of our upbringing, and that upbringing was somewhat unusual, I think. I went to a small boarding school, outward bound kind of school, uh, Sedberg, not far from here actually, north of Montebello. It was run by a Victorian headmaster, very strict, in a very old-fashioned style, but he was inspirational in many respects, both in terms of literature, particularly poetry. Instilling a love for it in you. Yes, but also very much an outdoors person. I would say a romantic, in quotation marks. He's inspired us as boys. And then I went to Bishop's University, and again, there was a professor there who was devoted and sensitive and inspirational in literature. It really started, I suppose, with my father, who was a great interest in poetry. My father had a great sense of humor because he would use poetry as a punishment. If we misbehaved, we'd have to memorize poetry and recite it in front of the family that evening. So it's surprising that you retain a, an interest and enjoy in it then, is it? He was quite smart because he said to us, we could choose our own poems after a while. I was determined to choose poetry that he would not recognize, and so that got me further interested in it. So you can see there's a thread that weaves its way through here in terms of interest, both in poetry and literature. Did you have to overcome your childhood? No, I think I was a product of it. Well, uh, we're all products of yes. our childhood. Your, your parents were well off? Did you, did you um, live in a... In no, a they, they were not particularly. They were civil servants here in Ottawa. My father worked in foreign affairs, Pearson. And then he changed his career in his mid-50s and uh, became an investment banker. They weren't poor, but they weren't wealthy. Uh, you didn't go without, and you were emotionally uh, loved, supported, stable. I would say so, yeah. 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 That, that goes a long way in yeah. explaining <laughs> who you are now. Well, I think those things help. Of course, I spent a lot of time at boarding school. The rules were very straightforward. They were extremely strict, and you knew if you broke them what the consequences were. <laughs> <laughs> were you caned? Were you ever caned? Oh, yes, yeah. No, uh, uh, corporal punishment was part of the routine. But never sexually abused? No. No, I, I would say it was a relatively healthy life. I, I used to be homesick, but that's fair ball, I think. Your book is called My Heart is Africa. I had trouble reading the first two to three chapters of your book. There were a lot of overwrought adjectives attempting to convey your amazement and fascination for nature, the clouds. You used the word clouds many, many times. Mm -hmm. Cumulus, reddish haze, liquid haze, turbulence, ribbons of light, fire, sunset, red earth, 
and my sense is that you wanted to do justice to what you saw, but it's very difficult to do that without mm -hmm. sounding the way I think you did. Right. I think that's a, f a fair observation. Of course, flying is very much about clouds. Uh, it's your sort of environment. So the first part of the book is a, very much about flying, so it's hard not to bring up some of those. The question really is, is there too much? Because too much, uh, suddenly you can cross a line and uh, you've lost the reader or you fall into cliches or whatever. Or you've annoyed yeah. and frustrated the reader. It, I felt just too much. And I, allow me to, uh, please don't take this the wrong way. No, no. I'm My question is, do you think that if you were an unknown entity, first of all, a publisher, any publisher would have published your book and second of all, would an editor have taken the knife to your prose a bit more aggressively? Mm -hmm. Well, the first question is hard to answer because what makes a publisher choose a book? I think most publishers choose the book because of the book, unless they are a personality that is so well known that the, that it doesn't matter what the person writes. And I certainly don't fall into that category. I think I can say that the publisher chose the book because they wanted to publish the book. Of course, editors are human too and have their own characteristics and their own what they believe is good or bad. But I had no pressure from the editor on the first couple of chapters of the book. In fact, I think what the editor liked about it was the pace of this story. And of course, the story is either of interest or it isn't. In fairness, I haven't had the observation that there were too many adjectives or too much description of the environment in which I was flying, because that's really part and parcel of what flying is all about. Talking about the writing, though. Yes, I'm talking about all right. the writing. That's fair enough. Well, I didn't get that from the editor, and maybe I should have. Maybe if you'd been my editor, we would have had some interesting conversations. Let me then say, once we got through the first several chapters, through the clouds and into Africa, I must say that I thought you were very strong on character descriptions, mm -hmm. beautiful, crisp, short, defining mm -hmm. descriptions of some of these really swashbuckling characters, at least right. that's how I perceive yeah. it. Of course, Africa lends itself to those kinds of characters. It may be, just reverting back quickly to the first two chapters, it may be that I was trying too hard to get the person to be in the same place I was. And of course, what is deadly for writing is to try too hard. <laughs> that may be what you perceive as a reader. Interestingly enough, most people have identified with the flying and felt that that was the stronger part of the book. So, you know, already we have a, a difference of opinion. It's very hard as the author to say, well, this part I feel is stronger than that part. Uh, Why is it difficult for you to say that? Don't you, don't, you, don't you have a favorite part of the book that you think is your best writing? Well, that's... Uh, Yes, I think I think I probably the actual flying the sensation of flying and what I was going through is perhaps the one I live closest to. That doesn't necessarily mean you write it as well, 
but it certainly is the one that I kind of feel strongly about. The characters, I was just describing them as I see them and as I know them, you know. And maybe that's a little bit better because you're slightly more objective. Just for, again, for me, as this particular right. reader, yes. at that stage, mm. I became really very interested in, in turning the pages. Prior to that, uh, I wasn't. I also thought you were very strong with the, the business angle mm. and African politics. And I also enjoyed, and perhaps uh, if I could ask you to, to comment on it, the connection with other human beings, mm. but particularly the way that you see your airplane as a companion. It's comfortable, it's reliable, faithful, mm. it's, it's like a dog, that's a sort mm. of eye. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you get to know a plane and its characteristics, and they take on a kind of personality. This is a, called a tail dragger, and they're a little bit more difficult to fly. But once you've learned how to fly a tail dragger, it's actually safer than a tricycle gear plane, which is much easier to fly. You don't have to really fly it. You can almost sort of sit in the controls and you steer it. It's a bit like driving an automatic versus a manual. Yeah, and of course, you add to that different experiences, different landings, uh, trying to land on a road, trying to land on field, whatever it might be. You get to know where the plane is vulnerable. Particularly, for instance, a tail dragger is more vulnerable in the crosswind, and so you have to deal with that. You have to be sensitive to that or or pay the consequences. I remember my grandfather, who was a great rider, saying, you can't compare a plane to a horse, because a horse has a personality and has, a, you know, you know its limitations and everything. I said, yes, you can. Mm -hmm. You can. They're very similar, really. So it's not a dog, it's a horse. <laughs> well, whatever. But the same kind of thing, if you're working with a horse, you know, you know what it can do or what it can't do. And they're different breeds. Yes. Yeah. Um, Strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. Yeah. Scott Griffin, author of My Heart is Africa, published by Thomas Allen. Perhaps if you could provide the listeners with a, just a brief overview of the book itself. The skeleton on which the book is written is the flight over to Africa, the time spent flying and working with the uh, flying doctors of East Africa and back. But the sub-themes are, first of all, the idea of breaking out of one's daily routine and doing something different, completely different. Different country, different culture. And I think this probably strikes just about everybody at some point in their career. But it's quite difficult to do. We all have responsibilities, and perhaps even more alarming is how do I reintegrate back into the daily routine of my life, will it have passed by and I'm in catch-up mode? Or will you be sort of captivated by what you've done and, and it make it very, very difficult to go back to where you were? Well, that's, uh, that's a, um, a subtlety that probably you don't think about at the beginning, but it certainly creeps up on you as you spend more time and wherever it might be. Well, especially given how adventurous your existence was there. Right. It's, it's hard to get off that adrenaline. Yes. I agree with you. But I guess what the point I was trying to make is that if you do seize the opportunity, it's immensely rewarding. It's worth overcoming these fears to break away and do something for a period of time that's completely different. I think I always think of it as um, like opening a window and you see a whole new world there and you come back with a lot more knowledge. You probably come back with a more inquiring attitude about life and things. 
of course the experience is uh, tremendously enriching. It's definitely worth doing. So that's one sub-theme. The second one is the relationship between myself and my wife and how the experience of going through a number of experiences but also being together in a different culture, uh, how that tends to bring you together. Maybe I can interject yeah. there simply because, as I say, I sensed a difficulty uh, that you had conveying the, the love and admiration for the physical grandeur of Africa, which is probably and perhaps impossible. I've been there. I've mm. felt that magic. And yet, by being understated in mm. your descriptions of your relationship with your mm. wife, I thought you captured that emotion beautifully. Yes. Less is more. <laughs> so rather than letting it all hang out, as it were, you can convey great emotion with fewer words rather than more words. The way I see a poem mm. is, is a distilled novel. Yes. I read often a novel to get those choice phrases that you just marvel at. Right. And, and a good poem mm. is basically just yeah. jam-packed with those. So you don't yeah. have to read the novel. Right. I think that's right. It, that compression of intense emotion with very few words, and that's what makes it such a, both a difficult and such a wonderful art form. I loved, in fact, I think it was probably my favorite part of the book, when you talk about your wife's interest in beads. Oh, yes. I think it's because it captures entrepreneurial spirit, because I just love the fact that once she's collected these beads, mm. put together as objects of mm. art, <laughs> for sale in New York. I love that. <laughs> yeah. But it sort of captures, in yeah. a way, who you are. I think yeah. this entrepreneurial spirit combined with this reverence for art. There are some links here because professionally, my interest in business was always at the venture capital end, which of course is risky. And I've always been interested in risk generally because risk, while it has some big downsides, also has some big upsides. So that's by nature going to be more interesting. And, and doesn't that speak exactly to what you just did? You took off as mm -hmm. a risk. You just took mm -hmm. off. Yes. I'd like to think it was a calculated risk. If you look at the really the breakthroughs, and it doesn't matter whether it's physical, emotional, intellectual, or spiritual, they all invite an element of risk, calculated risk. That's how you make the breakthroughs. Well, the fine line. Yes. Yeah. Uh, speaking of risk and making money, I really liked what you said about the people who were behind the, the organization is AMREF, the African Medical and Research Foundation. The, the admiration that you showed for these people mm. because it was much more than just making money and then you mm. then you compared it to right. Toronto. Yes. Yes, uh, you have to be careful because comparing you know, it, it, one doesn't want to make Toronto or Montreal or even Ottawa uh, to, to appear that it just doesn't have any sensitivities or anything. But it, it again, we come back to this bit where the the transaction is as important, perhaps even more important, than the participants. 
Whereas in Africa, it's the other way around. It's the participants that are so much more important than whatever the transaction is. And that's what makes uh, Africa, the humanity of Africa, so valuable, and the person, and the people, and the personalities. And, and many of these people were uh, were Europeans, white, among the people that I've met from Africa. There's, mm. there's this wonderful, difficult to describe, naivete, optimism. Find the same thing. Yeah, uh, you mean amongst the Africans? The black or, yeah, Africans. yes, yes. It's almost childlike in some respects, but it, you know, the wisdom of a child can be. <laughs> well, isn't it yeah. such that you yeah. know, they live in such poverty and yeah. yet? Uh, very human. Simple and, and, and yeah. enjoying the pleasures of, of right. life to a greater extent often than we do. Yeah. No, I, these, these things seep in very much so, and it's part of the experience of spending time in Africa, I think. Uh, the real value of Africa comes through from meeting people and uh, spending the, time with them. That's the same with everywhere in the world, yeah. though. Yes, but particularly in Africa, I think, because of this quality, this tremendous warmth that comes through. Your parents were comfortably yeah. upper, upper middle class. You, um, you've obviously made a great deal of money to be able to to, to do the things you've done, particularly with the, the poetry right. uh, prize, which incidentally is mm. so admirable. Mm. Well, thank you. Well, after university, my father basically said, "You're on your own. That's it." You know, so best thing he could have said. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I worked for BP, and, and I was just a kind of uh, slave of them for quite a few years, and then eventually I worked for a small venture capital company in Montreal, and then, and then with a partner started a company that was in the venture capital business, and it ended up turning into quite a large or a mid-sized public company in the automotive industry, providing magnesium die-casting parts for... We actually became the largest magnesium die-caster in, in the world. So it was quite a big company. So you moved from banking and from, investing yeah, that into, to the actual physical yes, manufacturing. I remember my partner saying one day, you know, there's more money chasing fewer deals. We've got to be a deal. We turned into a deal, and <laughs> it was quite easy to raise the money. So that built up, but in the process, of course, I went from 50% down to about 2% because we were raising so much money and it was being diluted all the time. Ownership. Yeah. Then two large companies, Fiat and Norse Kidro, bought the company and decided they wanted to take it private, and they wanted to put their own people in. And I was out on the street. But with, I, with how many hundreds of million dollars in your No, pocket? no, no. It wasn't that. I mean, it was a couple of million. And then I in, uh, invested that in a small manufacturing company. And that, tend, that did very well. And uh, so here we are. Well, and I think people certainly with the, in the arts and uh, with the love of poetry are so happy that you are here. Well, that's been Great. tremendously rewarding, too, you know. The House of Anansi preceded the, the prize. No, the prize first. And, and then, when was the prize? When uh, it, it was in the year 2000. Oh, so not that long ago, no. really. Yeah, um, this will be our sixth year. 
We were having a dinner with uh, Michael Ondaatje and uh, David Young, who's a playwright in Toronto. I was bemoaning the fact that poetry was really slipping out of the mainstream of our cultural lives. I mean, it wasn't taught in the schools anymore. It's a, you know, it's really, really. And by the end of the evening, they had got a commitment out of me to put some money into a trust and start the prize. And the next so day, you should, you should have opened your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the next day, they went around to Margaret Atwood and said, "You know, this is going to happen." I don't know whether you know, but she's like a dog with a bone when something's going to be started like that. Anyway, that was in February. By the end of that calendar year, we had set up a trust, made a couple million dollars in the trust. We had chosen the judges. We had. 250 books submitted of poetry, and we had announced the shortlist. 250? Yeah. For one year? Yeah. That's, that's quite a lot. Now, now, this year, we've had 441 books submitted. Is this your first book that you've written? Yes. Scott Griffin, you're experiencing what it's like to be an author. What's that like? Well, I, I thought all you had to do was write the book, but that gets you to the start. This must be fun. Yes, it's great fun. You hold your breath a little bit because you get so close to it, and then when the book comes out, you think, oh my God, is this going to go across all right or not? And you have various constituencies, the flyers and people who know a lot about flying, the family. <laughs> I have a large family. Friends. So did you put anyone's nose on a joint? Did you say anything? Um, <laughs> well, the mechanic, I don't know whether you remember, but I at one point, and I saw him yesterday, and he had read the book, and he said, well, I still have those short, stubby fingers you refer to. I said, they're beautiful as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> they made the gas gauges go up. <laughs> People you comment on hang on to every word that's for sure you try in the acknowledgments to say i love you all but you know i guess you got to stand by what you've written there was a brief poignant reference to your daughter of 19 who didn't want anything to do with you <laughs> so i think i mentioned that it wasn't in her nature to communicate yeah it was very beautifully put actually yeah. the way you put it was yeah. very uh, diplomatic yeah. it's like basically <laughs> what she's she's just being a typical teenager yeah you you said this, this was a lovely experience. You're in Africa. You yeah. loved the country. Your wife yeah. was there. But yes, yes, because that was our only sort of regret that we were um, some distance from her, and because it was in her nature not to communicate, we felt we were even further than just the physical distance. But she is since very close, great person. She's an an artist and uh, lives in Berlin. Wow, what a great place to live for yeah, an artist. Yeah. Wow. Rides a 900cc motorcycle. She's a great character. She's got a book in her, I'm sure. Yeah, oh, several, I would think. <laughs> in closing, uh, this is out of left field, but I just was researching, uh, uh, maybe wrong, but one of the companies that, that you're involved with produces shock absorbers for the military. Yeah, well, for the military and high-speed rail, for for buildings, for earthquakes, for... It completes the gamut. It's interesting, though. I, I think I'm particularly sensitive to this because I, two days ago I saw Why We Fight. It's a very, a very interesting and persuasive piece of propaganda against Bush. 
bases itself on President Eisenhower's exit speech, right. where he warns against the uncontrollable military right. industrial complex and how it's all tied in with congressmen, yeah. etc. You're not well, making blood money, are you? <laughs> no. Well, I don't. Shock absorbers is hardly armament. And just about every company, in one way or the other, supplies the military. I mean, whether it's clothing or Coca-Cola or food or whatever, you know. Well, yeah, that's um, what Dick Cheney's all about. Yeah. The services. But Can you tell me why you love Africa so much, and then maybe why you love your wife so much, <laughs> and then are you going to go back to Africa? Do you want to live there? Well, let me start with the last question first. I do go back regularly because I'm still on the board of AMREF and the Flying Doctors. So I go back twice a year. It sort of reinforces what was a great experience for both of us. Why do you love Africa? It seems to me that Africa is such a huge subject, really. There's something very fundamental about that continent. Maybe it's because we all came, you know, our antecedents have sprung from out of Africa. You, in fact, talk uh, about Leakey's uh, yes. discovery of Lucy. And, right. And interestingly, about the fact that his son mm-hmm. used to administer the huge yeah, the game, game reserves. reserves. Yeah, very they, tough too. I mean, <laughs> really tough. He was tough, but yeah. but you're suggesting that his his absence is sorely missed. Yes. Yeah, the game reserves. I mean, he saved them. They were going under, for sure. They're not as tightly run and as well-preserved as they were back then, but I think they just would have disappeared otherwise. Why? Well, because there was so much poaching and corruption. and. Uh, oh, that's you know, right. He had his force that said, right. shoot. Shoot the man. Don't ask questions, Don't ask just questions. shoot him. Shoot yeah. And that message got out, and so poachers <laughs> went elsewhere. It's hard to describe just why you, what catches you in a place or a continent. It's tremendously varied. It's very fundamental. And perhaps I would say that its problems, as much as its beauty, makes it so human. Almost uh, heartbreaking, I yeah. think you used the term. Yeah. But it stirs up a desire to help in you? Yeah, I think it stirs up a mixture of things, which include a moral obligation to help Africa in its agony. All of that tends to bond you to a place if you've spent time and, ex- and had an experience in it. The love of my wife. Who's uh, in the background listening. I know. That makes it even more difficult, but um, not difficult at all, really. That, I think, is when you share experiences that are meaningful to you. That has a tremendous bonding thing. But she wouldn't fly in the, in the airplane, would you? Well, just across the Atlantic. Because she figured you might lose your life and so Well, no, I think I said to her, you know, the airplane doesn't know whether it's flying over water or land. Uh, she said, yes, but I do. <laughs> so not so dumb, really. <laughs> no, I think that's the important part of a relationship, to be able to feel, yes, go, and not just go grudgingly, but go with my blessing. And yes, I will be at the other end. And all of that is giving each other spaces without feeling that it's a zero-sum game, that your space is my loss or whatever, you know? In other words, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like your relationship is such that you're not making 
and a great deal of compromise, which can be the destruction of relationships. Yeah. Is that yes, accurate? Uh, uh, yes, I think, well, we give each other spaces, you know what I mean by that. And uh, So you've known each other for 20, 30, 20, 25 years? Uh, yeah, I'm going to be corrected from the background here, but I think it's 27 or 28 years. 28? Uh, yes, married. Married, okay. And how, if you don't mind me asking, yeah. how old were you when you uh, when you met your current wife? I was about 32, I think, 33. Yeah. So those and sharing experiences and then allowing each other spaces, I think, is a good formula for building a relationship. No urges to stray? No, no. I mean, unless it's in the airplane. <laughs> With your lover at the airplane. <laughs> Yeah, well, let's uh, somewhat describe that as a mistress, I guess. Finally, your love of poetry. Mm. Why do you love poetry? We touched on it. Yes, well, it's the kind of, I think we described it as a kind of synthesis or compression of intense emotional feeling, which ranges from all the feelings, anger, love, whatever. And it has a kind of curious genius of being able to do it in innumerable numbers of ways. So it doesn't matter what the emotion is, you can come at it, it seems, in an infinite number of ways with very few words. And if you think about that, it is totally incredible that you would think that if you're going to come at a subject many different ways, you'd need more words, not fewer. Mm. And yet the genius of it is that you you do it better if it's done well, yeah. uh, with fewer words. I must uh, express my appreciation for your house's ability to to determine talent. I, I see that now mm. he's already acknowledged, but I had the chance to interview Robin Robertson. Oh yes, about three weeks ago. Right, and his poetry is fantastic. Some of the poems in the book that you've mm. published, Swithering, right. are the among the best poems I've ever read from mm. anyone ever. Yeah. He is a most impressive poet. A lot of those poems are, uh, they really ring it out of you. They're sad in a way. They're Not visceral, a, they're, yeah. they're sensual, they're yeah. sexual. They're yeah. Comparing poems to songs, sometimes you listen to a, a ra the radio and a song comes on and you love it right away. Yeah. That's a great song. But then it sort of t becomes a bit tiresome after a while. So right, yeah. The best ones obviously don't. They maintain yeah. and they, they, they grow yeah. and they get richer and whatever. Yeah. The same sort of thing with poetry. I, When I read it, when his poetry, mm. immediately, immediately mm. I knew that these were mm. truly great. Yeah. Truly great mm. poems. Yeah. So much other poetry. Yeah. So I read it and okay, okay, maybe I'm not getting it. Yeah. Maybe it's me. I need to read it more often. But no, and yet I wonder if his stuff will tire just like a song that I love right away. Yeah. I, I, my I don't, sense is I that don't it think won't. So. No. But it's like it's this almost this mm. visceral emotional right. judgment like that yeah. that precedes the rational intellectual. Yes, I th I think good poetry does that. And it doesn't have to be necessarily that style. It, you, something in you knows this is really good. You're, you know you're in the presence yeah. of yeah. brilliance. Or yeah. Um, well, he's definitely in that league. He's uh, also a trustee of our um, poetry prize. So. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So he, um, 
Otherwise, I think that book would be shortlisted. He can't he can't submit the book because he's a trustee. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's sort of <laughs> yes, because uh, it could be fifty thousand dollars for him. <laughs> the trustees choose the judges, so you know it would be wrong for. Uh, you know. <laughs> but um, he's a he's a great trustee too, because his um, his judgment on both choosing judges and how the the prize should be positioned and everything else is uh, mm. invaluable. Well, I'm interested that you interviewed him because uh, he is one to watch. <laughs> <laughs>